the mind by nature is radiant and pure, the Buddha said. It is shining. It is because of visiting forces known as kalesas or defilements that we suffer. It is because of visiting forces to the mind that are known as kalesas or defilements, torments, that we suffer. Well, now just reflect back over the day to your different states of mind where you felt anxious or doubtful, fretful, irritated, impatient, confused, maybe angry, um, desiring what you couldn't have, having to put up with what you didn't want to. All of those are suffering states of mind that the Buddha said is caused by temporary visitor to the mind. It's not who you are. It's not some inherent aspect of you. It's just a temporary visitor to the mind known as a kalesa. Kalesa properly translated is torment. Because of a torment to the mind, we suffer. Okay, assuming that's probably true or giving the Buddha the benefit of our doubt, what are we going to do about it? (laughs) Because if we take the guidance of Uttajaniya, that the first job of the yogi or the retreatant is to have a right view, we should have the right view about these torments. And then we should establish the uh, awareness and the continuity of awareness that can uh, address them. Because as Sayadaw says, it is not you who removes these torments. It's not you who removes these torments. Wisdom does that job. Okay. If these visitors to the mind cause us so much suffering, even here in this protected, harmonious, relatively calm place and space, let alone what's going on in the world outside when we get there, if our suffering, if our anxiety, fear, is caused by these visitors, wouldn't you want to get a handle on it? Wouldn't you want to get a hand? Wouldn't you really want to understand how is this happening? Why am I suffering? What can I do about it? And what's reasonable to expect from mindful practice? So tonight I want to speak about these visitors. I want to speak about how to understand them, how to work with them, and to try to give some indication of how the process of mindfulness and the development of insight, knowledge, wisdom, uh, addresses them both temporarily in a, and in a more enduring way. In one way, or in one sense, we could say the whole path of awakening, the whole path of awakening is learning to recognize and deal with some level or some manifestation of these visitors to the mind. Because if they no longer visit the mind, the job is done. So think of it that way. We're going to be making friends with a lot of these visitors 
for some period of time until the job's done. So rather than taking an adversarial stance or attitude towards them, we don't need to befriend them, really, but we do need to be aware of them. Okay. So what is really, or what would be a skillful way of understanding these torments, these visitors to the mind? Well, we should understand them initially as deeply conditioned, habitual reactions to conditions. But because they are so deeply conditioned and so habitual and so ordinary, really, that we take them for granted. We assume that, well, this, this is how I am. Wrong understanding. One thing we can be sure, though, is that all of these torments of the mind are accompanied by restlessness. Restlessness of the mind, meaning unobserved thoughts. Restlessness of mind is, is what we kind of generally call the wandering mind. The mind that wanders off, and we're not aware of it, is indulging in and playing with one of these visitors to the mind. You might think of it that way. Every time the mind wanders off unnoticed, it is entertaining a visitor. Ouch. Anyway, that's what restlessness is. They're all fueled. All of these visitors are sipping the tea of restlessness. Or we should say drinking the Kool-Aid of restlessness. But, and the other thing is that they're always accompanied by some form of delusion or ignorance. Now there's two kinds or there's two flavors of delusion, ignorance that I want to talk about. And the first occurs when, you know that period of time where the mind wanders off, even though you're trying to pay attention, the mind wanders off, it enters some train of thought, you don't know it. And while that train of thought is going on, you're not aware that you're thinking, you're not aware that you're sitting, you don't know your gender, you don't know your age, you don't know your location, you don't know anything. You're completely ignorant, I mean, at that moment, of anything. And yet when the train of thought comes to an end, we can see that whole train of thought. What we're saying is, we were so blinded by, so enchanted by the content of that stream of thought that we didn't recognize, we forgot ourselves, basically. We forgot that we're here. We failed to remember to recognize that moment. Not mindful. But there's another kind of delusion. I call that ignorance. That's like not knowing anything. But there's another kind of delusion which also may be accompanying some of these visitors to the mind. Where we're not so unaware. We're not totally blinded. But we're aware enough to see the object, but we misunderstand it. We understand it wrongly. I'll give you an example. What do we have for lunch? 
can't remember. But whatever it was, let's assume that it was your favorite dish. There was some kind of little phyllo dough thing, right? Yeah? Hey, that was good. Okay. Right. So you, you're coming down, you, you get the plate, you know, you see that little phyllo thing, and you go, you know, and your mind is two, tra- two, two, two places in front of you, and you're no longer in your feet. You know, you're, you're in the phyllo dough. So <laughs> you see the object, but we understand it wrongly. We think that is going to be. Well, when desire enters the mind, whether it's desire for phyllo dough or something else, anything else, it causes the mind to see only or to recognize only the pleasant qualities of the object. You can't see anything wrong with that phyllo dough or that person if you happen to be desiring a person. All you can see is the pleasant qualities or aspects of that particular object. You see the object so you're not completely ignorant, but you misunderstand it. So we call it delusion. Or if aversion happened to be your flavor of the day or the flavor of the meal, and you look at that phyllo dough and you go, <sighs> all you see is the unpleasant aspect of it. The unpleasant to you under the influence of aversion. When we're under the influence of aversion or desire, it's accompanied by the restless mind that's thinking, chattering about it, and also deluded. We can get very enchanted We can spend, well, as we know, we can spend days, weeks, months enchanted with some object of desire and just fail to see the dark side of the moon, (laughs) you know? And all we see is just what we want, the pleasantness that we want to enjoy with that person, with that new car, with that house, with that family, with that meditative experience with that, whatever it is you're desiring. Sayadaw Tejaniya has a great little quote, you know, he says, um, yogis, um, I I don't have it with me, it's something like, yogis always hope for really good, pleasant, beautiful experiences in meditation. Rarely do they plan for dealing with the torments. So when you think about it, no, you saw the retreat advertised, you know, six months ago, and you said, "Hey, a retreat? Yeah, great. I need a retreat. You know, go to retreat. IMS is so nice. It's quiet. It's peaceful. You just settle in, relax, open up. You know, it feels so good to do on, to be on retreat. You know, you know, really, it's just so nice. You know, it's like you calm down and you feel loving and such nice people and never have any torments." And we, we, we trick ourselves into coming on retreat thinking <laughs> it's going to be like that. You know, how many of you looked at the announcement, oh, a retreat, nine-day retreat. Oh, good, I can sign up for that and plan on nine days of dealing with the torments. I know it's going to be a grueling haul, but I'm, I'm up for it. That's what I'm going for, nine days. No, no, no. We want the retreat. All we see is the pleasant aspect of it. Right? If we knew, if we if we saw the whole thing, we'd say, <laughs> I, I don't know if I really want to go, <laughs> you know, because it's a lot of work. But anyway, 
<laughs> so I've exposed the, you know, we're deluded, we're, we're ignorant or deluded, sometimes accompanied by desire, which causes us to see things in a distorted way, sometimes accompanied by aversion, also allows us or encourages us to see things in a deluded way. But because these habits of mind are so deeply rooted, we act them, we live with them, we act them out daily, just continually, because that's all we know. And it seems normal. It is normal. But it's, it's just a low-grade level of tormented mind. Okay. Because they're so habitual, frequent visitors to the mind, they appear as our default setting, our personality, really. And therefore, we take them to be who I am. It's me. But when we're identified with them, we can't see them as a visitor to the mind. They feel real, they feel permanent, they feel like an embedded in our very personality. What we do, or what the, what the unobserved mind does, it takes a momentary appearance, one of these visitors that momentarily appears to the mind, wanting, and we see, oh, wanting. And then we think, I'm always wanting. I always want something. We eternalize that momentary experience. And then not only do we eternalize it into, I'm always like this, we identify with it as, I am a greedy or an attached or a desirous type of person. Now we've got a fixed identity around a momentary occurrence in the mind. And if it's just a momentary thing, we can deal with it. But once it becomes a solid identity that seems to be eternal and embedded, we don't even think about, we hardly think about the possibility of it ever being removed from the mind. It's like a permanent, not a visitor, it's the landlord (laughs) of our mind. But we should also understand that when these torments arise in the mind, they interfere with our practice, they hinder our practice. We're not able to develop the continuity of mindful awareness that can recognize them, arrest them, put them aside, and eventually uproot them from the mind. Okay. And because of that, they cause us to live a very, only a portion of what it is possible to experience as a human being. Just, just think for a minute. Fear, fear is one of these uh, aversive uh, states of mind that visits once in a while. Just think of how much you have not done in your life because of fear. I don't mean fear of unhealthy consequences. I mean just fear of exposing yourself, of being uh, connected with some people, to, to accept the vulnerability that comes with insecurity. Fear is a tremendous conditioning force in our life, preventing us from living so much of what's possible. Just fear of pain, fear of emotional uh, tenderness, fear of vulnerability, let alone fear of the dark. 
I mean the inner dark. But we should understand that these torments are not accidents. They're not uh, nobody's, nobody's fault, so to speak. They are naturally occurring forces that appear in the mind due to causes and conditions. They obey the laws of Dharma. And it can't be otherwise. They appear due to the natural laws of the mind. And because they're a natural phenomena, they are not a permanent obstacle to our development of awareness, freedom, but they're an opportunity. So just in that statement, I want you to hear that, that when you see defilements, hindrances, obstacles, torments, whatever it is you want to call them, when you see any of them in your practice, the undharmic way of understanding them is, this is a problem, I've got to get rid of it. The right view, the dharmic view is, here's an opportunity to be aware through mindfulness, to understand through vipassana, and to liberate the mind. This is an opportunity. It's not an obstacle. To see it as an obstacle is to fall back into an ordinary conditioned view that leads to suffering. But to recall and to remember the dharmic view, how to see these, this kind of experience through dharma eyes, through the wisdom of the dharma, would say, Yes, this is a visitor to the mind. It's tormenting. It's causing suffering. And it's an opportunity to wake up, let go, be free. Here's how to do it. You don't believe me? Come on now. Why do I say that? Because through, I mean, today... Through, well, this is what, day uh, three, huh? day three of Saturday, Sunday, Monday. We've had three days of practice. There's getting to be some greater clarity about what is mindfulness, getting to be a little more momentum, and along with the momentum of mindful awareness comes greater seeing. We see, we see more of what's going on. I'm not saying it's all pleasant because, as you know, self-knowledge is not always good news, but we do see. And when we see, it is like mindfulness is like a searchlight casting for faults in the clouds of delusion in the mind. Because the mind is just filled with kind of a constant stream of deluded, enchanted, bewildered thoughts about ourselves, about reality, about the world. And mindfulness is just going, wait a minute. that's not the way it really is. There's all kinds of gaps in here where we can see through the illusions and actually be present, be mindful. And in those moments, the torments disappear. Brief, but noticeable. We want to take notice of those. In the Buddha's articulation of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is the path that each one of us needs to develop in order to free our heart, our mind, 
from suffering and the causes of suffering, from the torments. The Eightfold Path is, as I may have mentioned, is three trainings. The first training is in the precepts, behavior, where we are mindful of our intention before speaking and acting. And by doing so, we purify our speech, we purify our actions, so that we don't act out any of these defilements. So when we see you know, the impulse to say something that's unkind, we notice that intention, don't say it. Or we see the impulse to act out in a way that would cause harm to ourselves or others, we see that, we don't do it. And so by exercising restraint through the power of mindful awareness of intentions, we overcome what are called the transgressive torments. We're not transgressing against others. We're not causing harm, but that's what it means. And so we get to enjoy the happiness of living in harmony with ourselves, at least, and often with others. But the mind can still be pretty tormented and obsessed with any of these torments. And so the Buddha offered a second training, which is the training in mindfulness, really. The continuity of mindfulness is samadhi. And what happens with mindful, a moment of mindfulness is the mind is temporarily or momentarily pure, meaning free of torment. Let me explain that. When, even when we feel tormented, if we can be aware of that tormented state of mind, the awareness moment is free of the torment. Okay, so in a moment of mindfulness, there are no torments in the mind. So the mind is temporarily pure of the obsessive quality of these torments. Now, a moment, a single moment of purity, a single moment of mindfulness is hardly noticeable and it seems like a struggle to get sometimes. But when we're able to develop some momentum and we may have 10 seconds or, or a minute or two or three or four that goes along without an obsessing quality of the mind, where there's that much continuity of mindfulness, then you can really feel what it feels like to have a mind free of obsessive torments. It's exquisite. When the mind is secluded from the torments, it's calm, it's open, it's loving, it's clear, it's understanding, it's faithful, it's equanimous. It takes some momentum before it's that noticeable. But that's the direction we're going. And of course, some of you with more experience, or if it's not just your first retreat, have seen, even on day three, periods of time, 10 seconds at a time, 30 seconds at a time, where there's just ease of being with the way things are. It's a relief. But conditions change. You never know when some little mind bomb is going to trip up and your button's going to get pushed and boop, there we go, obsessing again. And so the Buddha offered a third training of the Noble, Noble Eightfold Path, which is called wisdom or the development of insight 
through Vipassana practice. Vipassana practice temporarily purifies our understanding. We're not just purifying our intention before speaking and acting. We're not just temporarily purifying our mind, but we're purifying our understanding of wrong views. And when we do that, it offers a glimpse, or it is the key to what the Buddha called the highest happiness, which is peace. Okay. So this Noble Eightfold Path is really the, the, the vehicle for us to get a handle on, to begin to recognize, to get a handle on, to kind of chill, to put aside, actually, eventually to uproot these tormented, or these torments, the tendency to indulge in these torments. So let's go a little further into how we actually do that. One of the first elements for working skillfully with these torments and tormented states of mind is to hear about them. Right view. To hear about them. To hear that, you know, impatience, desire, fear, anger, depression, whatever it is, they're, they're temporary visitors to the mind. They cause you suffering. And just with that information and also having them identified, what, what are these torments? You know, anger, irritation, frustration, disappointment, but also longing, desire, anticipating, uh, hoping for, wishing, enjoying indulgently, meaning without being aware. All of these are tormenting states of mind. So once we hear about that, then we can begin to recognize them. But if we don't know that these, well, deeply conditioned, familiar, ordinary, normal, mundane experiences of anybody's human life, if we don't understand that this is the, these are the causes or the sources of our suffering, we won't even be interested in doing anything about them. But hearing that they are the source of the suffering that we experience in life, we've at least got to take a second look and say, really? How is that so? And then we can begin to recognize them. So now you're practicing mindful awareness, trying to pay attention to either a chosen object or the object that has called your attention in each moment. Plenty of times, as you know, the mind is not able to do either one. It is entangled in some other time, place, scenario, fantasy, memory, whatever. And every time the mind is not seen in that way, not seen with mindfulness, it is entangled with a torment. Every time. Okay. That means we've got a lot to recognize, don't we? You know, maybe it doesn't, and it doesn't happen when it, you can't recognize it when it's happening because by very definition, you're either ignorant of it or deluded about it. So when you come out of it and you see that, I've been struggling, I've been, you can just take a look and go, what the heck was going on? Oh, self-pity. Oh, fear. Oh, anxiety. Oh, dis- despair. Okay, now, you, now you've got a handle. Now you've got the name of 
the torment. Once you recognize them, or any one of them, the tendency is, as you know, to quick, get back to the breath. (laughs) You know, like deny that it was really happening. Just kind of like avoid it. Maybe if I just quickly get back to the breath, it will just go away. Well, you can distract yourself from it, of course. But what did you understand about it? Not much. Okay. So another, a more skillful way of responding to the recognition of a torment in the mind is to relax and just to accept, oh, this is the way it is for now, for me. This is the way things have come to be. The mind is entangled in, you know, fear, or the mind is entangled in self-pity, or the mind is entangled in doubt. Okay, wow, I wish it wasn't that way, but that, that's the way it is. And just accepting the fact that, oh, this is the way things have come to be for me for now, just relaxes the mind. And then there's not such an urgent, I got to get rid of it, I'm doing something wrong, uh, struggling with it, or just trying to get back to you know, your chosen object, the breath or sounds or whatever it is. Because that's, what, avoidance, desire, struggle, all of which are other additional torments. You know, if we get angry because we're irritated, it's double dosa, double dosa, or double anger. If we like what we like and like that we're liking, and this is, this is hard, you know, then we're double desired. Okay. So we recognize their presence. We relax. The first, recognize. The second is to relax, meaning to just accept Oh, this is the way it is for me for now. Okay. And with that, we can begin to accept, stop struggling, be mindful of. Because, as Utejaniya said, the mind is not yours. Meaning, you don't get to pick and choose everything that appears in the mind. Stuff appears that we'd rather not see or think or feel and yet it does the mind is not yours but he goes on to say but you're responsible for it meaning once it has arisen you better take care of it because if you don't it can really make your life a mess right you know we can't just ignore these visitors when they come to visit the mind they arise due to causes and conditions not our invitation okay and when they do it's like any well, unwelcome visitor to the, to the house. If you don't take care of them, pretty soon they think they own the place. Hard to evict, you know, uh, visitors like that. So it's important to, to recognize, to relax in order to accept. And the, that's the information we need. Then we need to use this information with some intelligence. We need to think about and, and skillful thinking, or thinking that supports your practice, is skillful thinking. You, you, can, you can do that in practice. You can think skillfully about practice. It's necessary. If we didn't think about practice, we wouldn't know how to practice. And so we, 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 we remind ourselves how to practice skillfully by the use of thoughts. So how do we practice skillfully? We've recognized a torment. 
we've relaxed and we've accepted the fact that this is the way it is for me for now. What next? Well, we know that if we act it out, we're just strengthening it. And so we want to remind ourselves to exercise some restraint. To just say, while I feel this compulsive urge to express this torment, anger, desire, sleepiness, take a nap, uh, whatever, self-pity, stop practicing, doubt, just stop practicing. Um, There's all kinds of ways that we stop practice because of these torments. So we want to exercise some restraint by not acting them out. Restraint can be just say no, or it can be to replace that state of mind with some other state of mind. Somebody in my group, one of my groups today, was pretty pretty overwhelmed with their emotional torment. And I said, you know, when it gets that strong, when we get overwhelmed, when we're not able to be mindfully aware of the emotion, the big flood of emotional stuff, then we want to turn away from it, not try to stay with it because we just get sucked in and drowned in it. We want to back off, pay attention to some other object, meaning seeing, hearing, feeling with your body, some present moment sense contact. You're still being mindful. You're being mindful of seeing. You're being mindful of hearing. You're being mindful of feeling uh, sense contact. So you're sustaining the continuity of your mindfulness, but you're turning away from what you can't be mindful of, and you won't act out. You won't be, you'll be exercising some restraint, putting the brakes on that, so that you're not acting it out. You can also do some reflection. You know, sometimes uh, when we have a lot of aversion, sometimes, as you know, many people practice loving-kindness or metta as a way of putting the brakes on the aversion. We practice forgiveness for putting the brakes on blaming. And there's other reflections like that that can effect restraint against acting out this obsessive state of mind. Once we recognize, relax, exercise some restraint, then we want to reframe our understanding. Reframing our understanding is to remind ourselves that while this tormented state of mind has arisen, and yes, I have to deal with it, it is something that can be dealt with. It's not just a sign that I'm incompetent, my practice is not working, I'm a failure, or this is too strong, or even this is the way I am, I'll put up with it. That's not skillful. So we need to reframe our understanding to, yes, this is a tormenting state of mind. Yes, I'm suffering. Yes, this is the way it's come to be. And it can be dealt with. It's an opportunity to play your edge. It's an opportunity to expand the field of your awareness into, well, what has been previously unseen. And that's why they have such a heyday when they arise in the mind, because we don't see them. But as soon as we see them, recognize them, and begin to pay attention to them, recognizing them more quickly, being willing to spend time with them, then we're working with them. So just to reframe our understanding that these can be worked with, 
and to be aware of them, even for a moment, is not to be caught in them. Okay. So we want to, in our reframing, we want to understand that these habits of mind are deeply conditioned, and so we need to be patient. When they arise, be patient, relax, but be persistent. Be persistent in your application of mindful awareness of them. And this is the way we, we initiate working with them through this understanding, this reframing of our understanding. They're not permanent. They're not a sign of failure. They can be worked with. So once we've recognized them and relaxed, accepted them, and not acting them out exercising by exercising restraint and reframed our understanding to where, okay, I'm willing to work with them. What have I got to do? Well, what do we have to do? All we have to do is observe them. Just observe them. What is, because each of these torments has their own uh, unique, unique characteristics. We could say they all have their own fingerprint. They leave a fingerprint on the mind. And every one of them has its own fingerprint. They feel a certain way in the mind. They cause the mind to think in a certain, in particular way. Most of them condition a pretty uniform, but uniform to you, generic, but uniform to you, uh, matrix of sensations in the body. You know, when you get angry, you have a certain tightness in the jaw and hunching of the shoulders and clenching of the fists and just kind of a shortness of breath. That's anger. When you when the mind is filled with desire, well, it's not like that. It's got some other feelings, other sensations in the body. Okay, so we can begin to recognize the unique characteristics of each of these states of mind. How they manifest physically in the body or what they condition in the body. How they feel in the heart. The kinds of story that they proliferate in the mind. And by just being, just being willing to hold our attention there and recognize this experience, this is what it feels like in the body, this is what it feels like in the heart, these are the kind of stories it tells myself. We're learning about the very nature of these torments. And each one, as I said, has its own nature. Now, this doesn't happen in five minutes. It doesn't happen the first time you ever look at it. Because, let's face it, all of these torments of the mind are unpleasant. They're painful. They're unpleasant. They don't feel good. You know, we'd rather, not, we'd rather not face them, frankly. That's why we haven't looked at them. Because they're, they're not pleasant. And so we have to kind of recognize, remember this, re- recognize this, that this, this is confronting, you know, mindfulness is confronting these deeply conditioned habits that we're just not aware of. They're unpleasant. But we can strengthen our mindfulness with our faith, with our reflections, with our resolve, with our energy, so that we can just hang in there. Just let me be, let me just be with this. Kind of encouraging ourselves. This doesn't feel good. I'd rather just kind of act it out, 
<laughs> I'd rather just give it to somebody else. Uh, just write that note, metta, he, you know. Uh, but if we can encourage ourselves to just bear with it, that means being willing to experience unpleasantness consciously. We experience a lot of unpleasantness, you know, with a lot of resistance and struggle. So why don't we just minimize it and just do it willingly? You know, we've all experienced a lot of frustration, disappointment, despair, desire that's not fulfillable, wanting, yearning. We've we've all felt a lot of that. If we choose, if we could choose to feel that with awareness, the whole world of understanding each of these torments of the mind would come into view gradually. Use the appearance of these torments as an opportunity to investigate their nature, Sayadaw Utejaniya says. They are natural phenomena. They're not your torment. Everyone experiences them. When there is attachment or aversion in the mind, always make that your primary object. Don't be led around by greed or desire. Take time to learn about it. Pay attention to its characteristics. If you keep falling for greed, you'll never understand its nature. Sayadotejaniya says. So we observe. We observe repeatedly, over and over, every time, being willing, holding, keeping our faith, having the energy, having the resolve, being willing, and we observe. We recognize, in time, we begin to recognize the unique flavor, the unique characteristics, the, the unique thumbprint, fingerprint of each of them. And then what? We realize, with the steadiness of our attention, on any one of these states of mind, first we realize they don't last very long. The story, let me just let me just say, the story of my anger and why I'm so self-righteously angry and should be angry and got to do something about it, that story goes on forever, can go on forever, decades. We can hold the resentment a long, long time. But the actual feeling in the heart is changing momentarily. It doesn't last. And so that's what we need to get a hold of. That's what we need to get a get the mindfulness to recognize. Oh, this is the feeling. And when we're actually able to be with the feeling of these torments, we will realize they don't last very long. None of them last very long. They may come back. They may recur frequently, depending on the strength of the habit. But in a moment, we can see this state of mind come to an end. You don't only have you don't only have to act out your desire to satisfy it. You can see desire wanting come to an end by paying close attention. This realization of the temporariness is insight. This is one of the uh, primary insights into uh, all phenomena. They're impermanent. We may not 
we may not recognize, we may not understand really how significant that is. But if, if once you hold the mind on any of these torments and you see it come to an end and you realize, I don't have to satisfy my desire. It ends anyway. I don't have to express my anger. It comes to an end by itself. I don't have to, you know, kind of get over my fear, you know, do some courageous, heroic thing. It just comes to an end anyway. Once we see that things come to an end, once, it starts to carve a new groove in the mind. The mind now has another way of dealing with these torments. And if we just repeat that every time it arises, we just watch it come to an end. We watch it come to an end. We watch it come to an end. In time, that knowledge that this is an impermanent state, it's not because we think, oh, this is going to end. It's because it's embedded in our understanding. This is the pathway to liberation. Not only do we see that, or do we realize that this these torments are impermanent, each one of them. But we also realize that, well, each one of them is very unsatisfactory. Now, we don't know that yet because we are willing to indulge in them when they arise. Thinking that if I get angry enough, and if I stay angry enough, eventually it's going to be satisfying. Uh, that didn't even sound right, does it? You know, but still, that's, that's the kind of assumption. We have these unexamined assumptions in the mind that, you know, if I can hold my resentment long enough, eventually they'll come around. <laughs> Not yet. Okay, so what we're doing through directly observing these torments of the mind when they arise is we are undermining our assumptions about them. And one of the assumptions is that they last forever. We see that. They are impermanent. Another assumption is that somehow I'm going to get some satisfaction out of this. I'm going to get some satisfaction out of this desire. I'm going to get some satisfaction out of being angry at that person or blaming that person. I'm going to get some satisfaction out of whatever. And we're not. It's always going to be unsatisfying. It's going to be unpleasant, it's going to be painful, it's going to be unstable, we're going to feel insecure, and that's a fact. No matter how tightly you hold on to your emotional dramas, we don't feel good about it. As justified as we may be in feeling you know, hurt. And there's a lot of cruelty in the world, there's a lot of brutality in the world, there's a lot of harm being done in the world. And we're the recipients and we're the actors too. That's not to say that there isn't. But only we can free our mind. We can't change everybody else. Only we can free our mind. And so this is the way to free our minds from the effects of our own and others' harmful behavior. Yes, we want to act in the world when the time is, when the time is right, when we have the wisdom to, to understand how to act in the world, to address Causes of suffering? Of course. We're not just passively just kind of saying, suffer me. We're not doing that. But on the other hand, only we can do anything about our own suffering. 
Don't try to avoid objects or experiences, Saito says. Try to avoid getting entangled in these torments. So as long as we are observing these uh, tormented states of mind, we'll see, we'll realize that they're impermanent. We'll realize that they really bring no satisfaction. And the third insight that we realize about all of them is that they come unbidden. We don't invite them. They come due to causes and conditions. They have their own nature. They are ephemeral. They're evanescent. You can't really pin them down. When you look at them, they just kind of eventually just vaporize. They have no inherent realness in our minds. They're just a temporary appearance due to causes and conditions, like a rainbow, except how would you have a tormenting rainbow? Let's see, we need a better example. <laughs> but it's like a rainbow. You know, it appears due to causes and conditions. Light, moisture, the angle of viewing, a rainbow appears. But there's no substance to it. You can't package a rainbow and send it to anybody. It's only an appearance that can be recognized. So too, these tormented states of mind. They're an appearance due to causes and conditions and viewing wrongly from a certain angle. As soon as we correct that angle of viewing, the appearance disappears. It's not there. We can't say that it never was there because we saw it. It was an appearance due to our faulty seeing. Mindfulness sees things correctly. Mindfulness sees things straight, as, as Carol was speaking about last night. No spin. There's no spin on mindfulness. It spins things towards the truth. This is the way they really are. And so with these realizations that all of these torments are temporary, impermanent, they're unsatisfactory, no matter how long you indulge, no matter how much you embellish the enchanting story of your suffering, it's not going to be satisfying. And they're ephemeral. They're evanescent. They arise due to causes and conditions that you can't control anyway. And when you see that, it's easier. I won't say it's easy. It's easier. Let them go. Let them be. Don't get entangled in them. They appear, but don't get entangled in them. As long as you're aware of the defilements or these torments, Saito Tejaniya says, you're doing well. As long as you're aware of them, you're doing well. Hear that. So that when you have tormented state of mind, as long as you are aware of them, you're doing well in your practice. In order to understand these torments, you have to watch them again and again. What can you gain from just having or expecting good experiences? If you understand the nature of these torments, they will dissolve. And once you're able to handle these torments, good experiences will naturally follow. Most yogis make the mistake of expecting good experiences instead of trying to work with the defilements. He says, this is our work. This is our challenge. This is our path to be developed by each one of us to begin to get a handle on the transgressive torments, where we act them out, causing harm to ourselves and others, where we obsess about them, or the obsessive torments, where we just kind of 
beat ourselves up with or entangle ourselves in mental suffering. And then there's the, you know, the hidden, the latent little mind bombs, buttons that we have ready to be pushed by that right set of conditions to push it in our mind. And it's only through this kind of information, using this information intelligently, practicing mindful awareness in order to gain knowledge, in order to learn about each of them, that we're ever able to have these insights, these liberating insights. They're impermanent, they're unsatisfying, they're not really real. And with, with that insight, or with those insights, seen repeatedly in the mind over and over, then the mind comes to change its view, comes to understand things differently. And when we do that, we don't resort so quickly, or so often, or for so long, we don't resort to these tormented states of mind as a false vehicle for happiness. This is how we practice Vipassana. This is how Vipassana knowledge, insight, leads to liberation, leads to the end of suffering. But it's all dependent on having the right view, being willing to make the effort to be mindfully aware continuously. So let's sit for a moment and just let the words quiet down. The mind by nature is radiant and pure, the Buddha said. It is because of visiting forces known as the torments that we suffer. But remember, always remember, Utejaniya says, that it's not you who removes these torments. Wisdom does that job. When you are continuously aware, wisdom unfolds naturally. Thank you for listening to the Dharma. There's about 45 minutes for mindfulness in motion. Whether it's adjusting your seat, or walking, or getting a cup of tea, or whatever it is you do. And then at 9.15 we'll have another short sitting in the evening, and one of us will offer some reflections on the day's practice. Okay. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.